Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 21, and indeed our penultimate session of Alice's Adventures. We are coming to the very end now of Through the Looking, <clears throat> of Through the Looking Glass tonight. We're going to talk about the last sort of full chapter. There are some other briefer chapters that follow this, um, and we will talk about that next time. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so we're going to... Um, uh, we're going to finish the book next week. That's the goal, which is good because after that, I'm going to Australia. So um, I'd be, we'd be, so rather than having a couple weeks off and then coming back and uh, uh, trying to finish up, we're definitely going to finish up next week. Um, so that's, uh, that's the plan. Bricktails, I hadn't uh, planned to talk about movie adaptations, um, but it might be an interesting thing to do in other minds and hands. I know that Maggie and I were thinking of doing some other, um, we're going to do some Tolkien adaptations first, but we're going to do some non-Tolkien adaptations soon. Um, uh, yeah, D the Disney adaptation, the Tim Burton adaptation, and the Matrix, yes, yes. Um, the Matrix isn't exactly an adaptation, but I do love the, um, uh, the Alice in Wonderland overlay um, of uh, uh, of the Matrix, but um, anyway, yeah. So there's um, certainly lots of interesting adaptations to uh, um, uh, to discuss, but I don't think we're going to do that here because we are overdue to get to our next discussion, which is, of course, going to be... I'm looking at my bookcase. I'm like, remember the history of Middle-earth? We used to talk about that. That was like a year and a half ago. Um, because, of course, we took a very productive pause to do The Nature of Middle-earth when it came out. I'm really glad we did that. Um, but, um, but yeah, we're going to talk about The War of the Jewels uh, next time. Uh, next book, I mean. Volume 11 of The History of Middle-earth. As we continue our many year what was it was it 2014 2015 somewhere around there we did the book of lost tales we started our trip through the history of middle earth um and uh, we're up to volume 11 now it's going to be a lot of fun but um anyhow i'm uh I'm excited about that. And of course, I am excited to go down to Osmoot. So that serves as a little bit of a reminder. Uh, if you can't join me in Australia, which I can understand, uh, then, uh, though I am very much looking forward to getting to meet some of the people whom I'm going to get to meet down there. Um, many people who have been listening and participating in broadcasts for years from uh, Down Under that I've, uh, that I've never been able to actually meet in person. So that's going to be great fun. Um, uh, but anyway, um, I'm going to, uh, we're going to be there, but you can join us remotely at strange and unusual times in whatever your time zone is, but also there will be uh, the, um, the archive recordings available uh, for all of the presentations and, and events down there uh, at Osmoot, so that should any of those things happen to fall in the middle of the night or whenever, um, that uh, uh, you should be able to uh, you should be able to, to to do that as well. So anyway, that is um, coming up uh, the weekend after next. Uh, and as I say, for my travel, I wouldn't be here for the Wednesday anyhow. So next week shall be the end uh, for Alice's adventures. Tonight we're going to look a little bit 
at the chaos that explodes um, when Alice becomes a queen. But first, um, first we're going to uh, go back to the poem, because we didn't get a chance to finish the poem. Now, I'm going to resist talking in too much... I mean, there's a lot of poem to discuss, and there's a lot of depth we could go into. Um, I'm not going to really go sort of line by line, um, but, uh, but let's read it through again, and then I have some sort of general reflections on it that I want to share, and I'd be interested to see what you guys think as well. And then we'll move into Alice as Queen. So, um, okay, I wanted to keep those two to refer back to them. There's my heart and loot that we don't need to read again. Okay. I'm not going to sing it. This time I'm going to recite it because I want to emphasize, I want to make sure that I emphasize um, the rhythm of it. So again, we can, as we do, we were looking at the, the, the form of it, right? The, you know, what I call the, you know, the oral vocabulary of the poem. And so we want to make sure that we notice when the poem departs from, uh, from that vocabulary, right? When it, when it shifts its tone. Um, and see if we can make any sense of that. I'll tell thee everything I can. There's little to relate. I saw an aged, aged man a-sitting on a gate. Who are you, aged man, I said, and how is it you live? And his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. He s- m- notice, remember that penultimate line there in that first stanza is the first place where we have the first major metrical deviation, that extra syllable, the and, at the beginning of the line. If we didn't have that, it would be a perfect line, but it it introduces an extra beat. And his answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. And indeed, that is the first place where we stumble. Everything else sounds like a a normal intro, right? Uh, So we have the speaker speaking to us, the audience, right? So you've got the the speaker of the song and the audience of the song, and he's going to uh, tell this story of seeing an aged man, and then he asks the question, and it's a deep question. Um, well, it's at least a practical question. How do you live? That is like, you know, what do you do for a living? How do you make money? But also, it sounds like a deep question. It's framed like a deep question. How is it you live? Right? Um, and then the last two lines come off as almost a punchline, right? His answer trickled through my head like water through a sieve. That is not normally the way that the speaker of a narrative poem like this relates to his material, right? I mean, the entire purpose of telling us everything he can, howsoever much there may be to relate, um, is to tell the story of his encounter with him, but then to lead off by saying... And I don't remember a thing that he said is a strange sort of beginning. And we get that little metrical stumble at the beginning of that line to kind of trigger it, right? And to tip us off that something weird is just happening. And of course, it gets doubly weird when in stanza two, he immediately tells us what the guy said, which he says he doesn't remember, which was odd because he said he didn't remember it at all. Uh, But anyway, he said, I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat and make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. I sell them unto men, he said, who sail on stormy seas. And that's the way I get my bread, a trifle, if you please. 
But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green, and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen. So having no reply to give to what the old man said, I cried, Come tell me how you live, and thumped him on the head. His accents mild took up the tale. He said, I go my ways, and when I find a mountain rill, I set it in a blaze. And thence they make a stuff they call Roland's Macassar oil. Yet tuppence halfpenny is all they give me for my toil. But I was thinking of a way to feed oneself on batter, and so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. I shook him well from side to side until his face was blue. Come tell me how you live, I cried, and what it is you do. He said I hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright, and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night. And these I do not sell for gold or coin of silvery shine, but for a copper halfpenny, and that will purchase nine. Notice, of course, the huge deviation that has just happened there. Right? and work them into waistcoat buttons, which breaks the meter and the rhyme. I hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night. Um, why is that line so jarring? Um, well, certainly the whole idea of searching for fish eyes in the heather and then taking them and sewing them into waistcoat buttons, you know, like vest buttons, uh, in the, is starting with a strange thing and then making it into a surreal thing, right? So there's a... Uh, it's bizarre, as we talked about before. Um, but... Um, yeah... Yeah. Um, just as before. So, I mean, is there a kind of signal to us here? The pattern of the song is broken. This is the most radical breakage of the pattern of the song so far. Um, we've had some slight oddities in rhyme, like batter and fatter, which we talked about last time, suddenly transitioning to this two-syllable rhyme, which has been quite rare um, otherwise, uh, other places in the poem to this point. But to just, um, you know, and so go on from day to day is a perfect line in that, in that what fifth stanza, right? Um, and work them into waistcoat buttons. Extra syllable plus not even a vague attempt at rhyme with eyes. And of course, it's rather conspicuous because Haddock's Eyes is one of those names of the song, or it's what the song is called, I think. But anyway, um, it's one of those phrases that is attached to the song, right? Um, and, and it turns out to be completely outside the rhyme scheme. Um, but it's not just... It's not Haddock's Eyes that's outside of the Rhine scheme. I mean, notice that in the previous stanza, Sighed and Cried are, you know, two of the last rhyming pairs that we get. So Eyes doesn't exactly rhyme with those, but 
it's not only exactly the kind of word that we've just been rhyming, but it's a slant rhyme to what we've just been doing. I mean, it, it seems to follow on what came before. Um, buttons, on the other hand, really does not. Um, so what is um, the White Knight signaling that the old, the aged, aged man has completely jumped the shark in describing how he gets his bread? Um, that he not only performs this uh, Im impossible, like, bizarre alternate universe Rumpelstiltskin task by night, um, but that he does so and only gets a copper halfpenny for each every nine that he produces. And but then he goes on. I sometimes dig for buttered rolls or set limed twigs for crabs. I sometimes search the grassy knolls for wheels of handsome cabs. And that's the way, he gave a wink, by which I get my wealth. And very gladly will I drink your honor's noble health. And now, if e'er by chance I put my fingers into glue, or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe, or if I drop upon my toe a very heavy weight, I weep. For it reminds me so of that old man I used to know, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow, whose hair was whiter than the snow, whose face was very like a crow, with eyes like cinders all aglow, who seemed distracted with his woe, who rocked his body to and fro, and muttered mumblingly and low, as if his mouth were full of dough, who snorted like a buffalo that summer evening long ago, a-sitting on a gate." <laughs> Oh, come on, Tarlonio. I love the last verse. <laughs> the last verse. Come on, like, how many times does it sound like it's ending, right? Um, the fact that we get the extension of the line, right? I weep for it reminds me so, which rhymes with or if I drop upon my toe. Um, so we're expecting the final line of the poem, right? The final line of the poem is infinitely delayed. What is the final line of the poem? A sitting on a gate, which rhymes with a very heavy weight, right? So that's totally fine, right? Um, I weep for it reminds me so a sitting on a gate, <laughs> right? It would work metrically, though not syntactically. Um, but then we get this delightful dilation of the end, right? Big ending, big ending. For it reminds me so of that old man I used to know, a sitting on a gate, would be uh, adding an extra line, which fits within the rhyme scheme, right? So we get that little extra rhyme in the middle, uh, you know, setting up the final line and, you know, la you know, landing on it with some closure. That would totally work, right? But then we get all those, but we're not content with that. Right. Instead, he has to describe it. Of that old man I used to know, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow. Okay. Whose hair was whiter than the snow. Okay. Okay. So, like, you know, first it's, uh, we're getting a little bit of detail, which sort of provides a little context. Whose look was mild, whose speech was slow. Okay. Okay, helps us to kind of picture, to hear things, 
in our imaginations a little more clearly, whose hair was whiter than the snow. Don't know that we needed to know that. He said he was an aged, aged man, but okay, we've added an unnecessary, you know, um, comparison of his hair to snow, kind of cliched, but all right. Whose face was very like a crow. Oh, come on now. Right. Now we're getting silly. Um, that's not only unnecessary, but seems to totally undermine. And then with eyes like cinders all aglow. Um, this is my second favorite line of these 12 extra lines that we get. Um, uh, with eyes like cinders all aglow. Now he's just getting completely carried away. Um, having compared his face unnecessarily and rather unkindly to a crow, um, he, he waxes poetical. Right. Um, with eyes like cinders all aglow. Not only is this um, a kind of imagery, which is not at all in keeping with, you know, like, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow. Right. I mean, it seems like this sort of bizarre, quasi demonic depiction of the old man. Right. Which it doesn't fit with anything that we've seen. But it's not just that the details of it don't fit the whole like style of it doesn't fit you know the 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 interruption with eyes like cinders all aglow even the use of the word aglow which is um a perfectly respectable word in its own way but you know is the it's sort of um a slightly over the top poetic way to describe it um Anyway, the, the, the whole syntax and cadence of that line is strange and over the top. Uh, again, getting completely carried away. Who seemed distracted with his woe. He's not the And there's an irony here. He's not the one distracted. It's the speaker of the poem, right? It's the first person speaker who's distracted continuously. Uh, throughout this, who rocked his body to and fro, sort of like whose look was mild and speech was slow, that is giving us some more context to uh, be able to picture the old, the aged, aged man as sitting on a gate, um, rocking his body to and fro, except this is an allusion back to something that already happened earlier in the poem, which was not that he was rocking his body to and fro, but the speaker was rocking him to and fro. There's now the second line in a row in which the speaker is essentially projecting his own perspective and even his own actions onto the aged, aged man himself. And muttered mumblingly and low is my third favorite line. Um, I love mumblingly. Um, one of the things that I love about this line is not only the delightful alliteration between muttered and mumblingly, um, emphasized by the fact that we get the M short U, M short U, right, which is a sort of higher level um, alliteration, but um, mumblingly, right? Remember I said that when you're, when you're doing perfect rhythm, uh, the easiest way to do perfect rhythm, especially iambic rhythm, uh, in poetry is to use one-syllable words. So when you can muttered mumblingly uh, and low, that 
like density of syllables there in the middle of the line is um, comical. It's 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 funny in itself. Um, as if his mouth were full of dough is my other favorite line uh, in here. This is uh, perhaps not quite as unexpected as whose face was very like a crow. Um, who snorted like a buffalo, of course, is <laughs> purely delightful because it's clear that he's coming to the end of his O rhymes, right? And I'm not sure, uh, Jen Artanis, if the buffalo is the big finish itself. Like if he was leading up to this the whole time, like he's stretching this out just so that he can bring the buffalo into it. Or if he's really grasping at words that end in O, uh, such that he's now having to drag the buffalo in. Um, it reminds me of Chaucer uh, at the end of the clerk's tale. Uh, the clerk adds a little song that he dedicates to the wife of Bath, which is a lot of shade being thrown there, but uh, and that's uh, too complicated to go into right now. But um, uh, he, the the little envoy, the he, he the little song um, that he sings at the end is uh, this sort of rhyming tour de force where he takes this one. Um, this one syllable and rhymes on it, I think 14 times. Um, and, and it's, it's a, it's not even as simple as snow, slow, crow, glow, um, rhyme. Um, the, uh, the, it, it's tile, uh, like battle, uh, battle. Um, so tile, T-A-I or T-A-Y, depending on the word, uh, T-A-Y-L-E, uh, or T-A-I-L-E or L-L-E, um, spelling variable. It's, it's an unusual closing syllable, uh, and he rhymes on it 14 times, and comically, when he gets towards the end, he seems to have run out of rhymes, and so he reaches for Kamile, uh, camel, um, which he like kind of drags a camel into into the song um, by force because he can force it to 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 finish the rhyme, uh, and that's all I could think of when we get to the buffalo at the end, um, who snorted like a buffalo, is not only um, just getting silly when it comes to the rhyme, but also uh, doesn't sort of flow. I mean, notice the, the, the pairing, right? I mean, there are generally pairs whose look was mild, whose speech was slow, um, whose hair was whiter than the snow, whose face was very like a crow with eyes like cinders all aglow, who seemed distracted with his woe, who rocked his body to and fro and muttered mumblingly and low as if his mouth were full of dough. So you see, we've gotten into this like Almost, they're, they're all the same rhyme, but it's almost like couplets there, right? Um, and um, but then, who snorted like a buffalo that summer evening long ago? That's a really poor transition. And you'll notice even the, the hyphen, the dash there at the end. Now, the dash closes the little aside, right? Um, it sounds like basically... The intention of the song is uh, 
you know, I weep for it reminds me so of that old man I used to know that summer evening long ago, a sitting on a gate. Three lines, right? Like you add the extra two lines of rhyme to it uh, before you come back to sitting on a gate rhyming with a very heavy weight. But then between the dashes, we get the extra, what, two, four, six, eight, nine extra lines? Uh, additional extra lines in there? Um, and uh, <laughs> Arthur wants to add, as Santa might say, ho, 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 possibly, possibly. Um, um, yeah, right. Well, exactly. As JJ says, once you start deviating from the established pattern, how can you stop deviating? Yeah, he seems um, the momentum of the, um, you know, the transition, the... Yeah, like, how do you know when you're done? I guess when you get to Buffalo, right? And can't think of anything else to rhyme. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, um, yeah. There is no clear cue uh, to end here. Uh, so it becomes this sort of, like, um, tour de force exaggeration of a big finish, but it's like the big finish that seems to, in a sense, sort of undermine, um, uh, undermine the whole thing. Well, I say undermine, <laughs> but I've seen undermining compared with which, sorry, no, that's not what I meant to say. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. Let's back up for a second. Um, There are several levels on which this poem is funny, right? There are several levels of irony going on. And let me just kind of try to point to them for a second. Um, because the one thing that becomes immediately clear, this, there's something, we get a pretty clear signal that Carol is doing something very meta with this poem. And the clear signal of that is, as I said, the um, uh, as I uh, as I mentioned at the start of the poem, the posture of the first person speaker telling the story to the audience, and the way that that gets broken there at the end of the first stanza, the way that gets disrupted at the end of the first stanza, and then last time we were talking about. Um, how stanza three then sort of takes it to a different meta level. But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen. That's the white knight. And although it might seem from one point of view obvious, yes, it's the white knight singing this, why shouldn't he be doing and saying white knightish things in the middle of this song? That's not how these songs work, right? The first person speaker who is relating this thing is not usually that kind of persona. Sometimes, uh, like we, we mentioned the Ancient Mariner last time, the narrator who meets the Ancient Mariner um, is in one sense a kind of framing protagonist, right? I mean, it is in, in a sense a poem about 
the story that he hears and then what he does and how he responds in, in a sense, but he's really just a framing mechanism. Um, the focus is never on the speaker is almost never that kind of actor. Um, sometimes it might be a song that w where the person is saying something that happened to them or an experience that they had, in which case they might be a little bit more of a player. Um, but again, in that case, the focus is on the story. The focus is on the... And instead we have... It's like the White Knight is himself not paying attention to his own song. Except he's singing a song in which he, the speaker, is not paying attention to this. So there's this tension within the story that he tells. He's telling this story whose entire focus is on what the aged, aged man is sitting on a gate said and continuing to draw our attention to the fact that he, for very white knightish reasons, is not paying attention to what the aged, aged man said. And in fact, what keeps moving the song along is his continued neglect to pay the least bit of attention while continuing to insist on the old man telling him, come tell me how you live. I cried and thumped him on the head, right? Um, so he continues to persist in asking, but never pays attention to it. And so the drama in which we are listening to the song, which the speaker claims to not know, Right, the story within the narrative that he is of the first person narrative that he's telling is how he did not listen, he did not hear, in fact, um, what <laughs> what the old man said, right? Um, and yet the entire point of the song is about what the old man said. So, uh, as I say, we have several layers of kind of weirdness and irony um, going on here. Uh, now. Looking in a little bit more closely, there's a further layer of irony added by the fact that the stories, the things that the first person speaker of the poem is not listening to, the things that the aged, aged man are actually saying are he's trying to convey something in particular, right? There is a point to his story. There is a point to his story. What is the point to his stories? All of his stories. What is the aged, aged man attempting to convey to the first-person protagonist of this song? It's pretty clear what he's trying to convey. Come tell me how you live is the question. And the answer, he spins these three different stories each one actually more wild and unlikely than the one before. But what's the point? He keeps coming back to the same thing. Notice, especially in the first one and the third one. Sorry, I'm going the wrong way. And that's the way I get my bread a trifle, if you please. He's begging. He's a beggar. The old man sitting on the gate is a beggar. And he's asking for money. So, how is it you live the joke that the aged, aged man is saying 
oh yeah, I look for butterflies and make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street, and that's the way I get my bread. A trifle, if you please. Like, the joke is, like, so you can imagine I don't make very much, do I? Right? If I, uh, if I rely for my living upon uh, mutton pies made out of butterflies sold to sailors in the street, I'm probably pretty poor and could use some charity. So, handout, please. That's the joke. The joke that the aged, aged man is kind of making. Right? The white knight not picking up what he's putting down. And so the second time, he tells a similar joke. Right? And notice the point here at the end of this. Uh, he now tells an even more outlandish story. A more improbable story. Um, of how he's part of this bizarre get-rich-quick scheme. Except... The punchline of that is Tuppence Ha'penny is all they give me for my toil. That is, once again, despite the fact that I perform these remarkable feats, that is, setting mountain rills on fire in order to uh, develop this nostrum, which is sold, uh, you know, uh, sold by cranks in the streets that probably take out newspaper ads to sell them, um, I only get Tuppence Ha'penny. So I'm very poor. He doesn't explicitly ask for a handout here, but that's still the implication, right? I need it. And then the third time, his story is even more outlandish. The Haddock's Eyes story. And his even stronger emphasis, which takes four entire lines, is that he makes almost nothing, right? I perform these amazing, time-consuming feats, and I get paid only a copper halfpenny for every nine of them and then he has a second stanza right in which he says i search in improbable places for even more improbable things and that's how i get my i get my wealth i'm as rich as i am i.e not rich at all completely destitute because what i do is dig for buttered rolls and set lime twigs for crabs and search the grassy knolls for wheels of handsome gabs um and in other words i get nothing at all, because I can't, you can't, you can lime as many twigs of trees as you like, you're not going to catch any crabs whatsoever. Um, and he's the wink, and that's the way he gave a wink by which I got my wealth. Wink, wink. I'm not wealthy, I am completely destitute, and very gladly will I drink your honor's noble health. Um, if you give me some money, I'll go have a beer, and I'll drink your health with it. Right. Um, he once again concludes by explicitly. It, you could call this implicitly, but very gladly will I drink your honor's noble health is a pretty pointed way of asking for a handout. Give me some money so I can buy a beer. Um, uh, so. Very gladly will I drink your honor's noble health. So that's what's going on in this story. What is the story of the aged, aged man sitting on a gate? He's a beggar. A rather whimsical beggar um, who has an amusing turn of phrase and a funny way of building up to the fact that he is destitute. Notice, of course, one of the other implications of this is that he he not only he not only is poor and a beggar if you see an old man who is a beggar on the street maybe you might uncharitably think that he is lazy. He could be working, right, instead of just sitting around and begging. And so he says, oh, look how hard I work. 
right? I do all of these remarkable things. And yet, tragically, still so poor, I would quite appreciate a trifle from you, right? Um, so again, as I say, he has a, um, a, a funny and engaging way of responding to the quest to, you know, the sort of a, what he maybe perceives as some kind of challenge. Why are you begging here? Um, in part because notice the question itself is a little bit obtuse from the first person speaker of the song, right? From the white knight, right? I mean, he comes across a beggar by the side of the road, sitting on a gate next to the road, right? And he says to the beggar, what do you do for a living? So right on one level, the beggar's like, um, uh, I beg for a living, but he doesn't say that, right? So he's like, oh, me, yes, exalted career, me, right? Um, and uh, has, you know, goes off on his uh, whimsical answers to what must have seemed to him a rather puzzling question. But even more puzzling is the fact, of course, that the White Knight... It's not just a matter of not picking up what he's putting down, right? I mean, the wink, the jokes, the uh, the indirect implications... Like, the indirections with which the aged-aged man is answering the queries, which are accompanied by increasing levels of violence on the part of the White Knight... Uh, character in the poem, these indirections go so far over the White Knight's head that they're going to need like a permit from the FAA, right? I mean, it is not even funny um, how far over his head they go. Um, so this, the failure to comprehend, right? The failure to communicate that is happening in this poem and this has been a theme throughout the book. We've seen many times people talking to each other and failing to communicate, right? Because they're not thinking, they're not oriented um, the right way, right? Um, they're, they're speaking at cross purposes. Um, sometimes, you know, maliciously and sometimes less. Um, but... Uh, but this is the most extraordinary example within this poem. This the lack of communication um, and and uh, the lack of connection between the aged aged man and the white knight's character is very, very profound. So the white knight's own obliviousness does he even now? I mean, it leads to again, as I say, is very meta, right? It leads to the question. Does the White Knight, when he says he's like going to sing a song for Alice, does he himself even now understand what it's about? Does he get the? Does he know? I mean, the first person speaker doesn't seem to pick up on it that the guy's a beggar. Does the White Knight even now understand that he's singing a song about a beggar? That's not at all clear, right? But wait, there's another level of irony. To this song because 
what the white knight is failing to get that um like the or rather the little sort of stories that the aged aged man is telling him that the white knight is not only failing to track with and comprehend but failing even to listen to are things that the white knight himself would actually love they're very white knightish uh i mean can't you um can't you imagine the white knight meeting somebody um who says i go my ways and when i find a mountain rill i set it in a blaze and thence they make a stuff they call roland's macazar oil um can't you imagine the white knight being you know responding and saying well that's a clever invention you know does it work um how's that done this is exactly the kind of thing the white knight loves i you know to take one thing and cunningly repurpose it into something else the kind of um um the kind of wild and like the more impractical it gets the more you'd think the white knight might be interested in it i hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night really wow that that's exactly again that's exactly the kind of i'm going to take one thing and i'm going to rename it into something else that the white knight was seems to be all about so here's the white knight missing this golden opportunity i mean like the two of them are kindred spirits and he's he's so i guess so the, the irony is that these two people who are so far from understanding each other actually would get along famously it's too bad the white knight's not paying attention he'd love this stuff it's exactly him it's very him um now there's sort of the further irony than to sort of to return after we see all this stuff to the initial irony of the frame of the poem the initial frame of the poem right i'm going to tell you the story of this time i met the aged aged man um and what he said to me which of course is ironic because he then immediately says he doesn't listen to it at all but even if the knight as singer of the song or author of the song who is different from the i as speaker of the song even if the knight himself does know what the aged aged man is singing about um he seems not to understand what is significant again he 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 makes it sound especially when we get to the end right um i weep for it reminds me so of that old man i used to know how well did you know this old man what do you know about him whose look was mild whose speech was slow even all the distractions right um even the unflattering things whose face was very like a crow with eyes like cinders all aglow um uh heck even snorting like a buffalo um there is nothing in there that seems to convey that he has any understanding of who what this old man was and what exactly was happening in this incident right so the entire framing of it that summer evening long ago 
It reminds me so of that old man I used to know that summer evening long ago, sitting on the... As if that summer evening from long ago has had a formative impact on his life. But not only is that clearly not true because he's not understood it, um, but of course we who can under seem to be able to understand a little bit better what's actually going on here understand that this is there's nothing actually deep happening here he's just met a rather witty beggar um who is jokingly not admitting that he's a beggar um and there's nothing more profound in fact going on but in the memory right we're being asked to imagine that in his memory it swells enormously large and notice the context of it right um and now if e'er by chance i put my fingers into glue or madly squeeze a right hand foot into a left hand shoe or if i drop upon my toe a very heavy weight i weep for it reminds me so i'm not weeping because my foot hurts i'm weeping because the dropping of a heavy weight upon my toe reminds me of that old man I used to... It, it, it reminds me of the aged, aged man, somehow. Madly squeezing... And I just that's just my favorite line in the entire poem. I love the flow of it. Or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe. Um, the, the delightful and perfect poetic... Like, the, the way that that line in jams and comes to this satisfying and triumphant metrical ending, or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe. Uh, the, 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 the kind of um, majesty with which those two lines in Jammed kind of roll out together, uh, and the comically exaggerated madly at the beginning, combined with the quite mundane, like, when I accidentally put my shoe on the wrong foot, right? Um, but to characterize that as an, a moment of madness, right? To madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe. Just such, um, uh, such a, a beautiful, genius line. Um, anyway, why is it that these things not just mishaps, right? But he's like, when bad things happen, it makes me think of the aged, aged man. I weep because it reminds me of the aged, aged man. So, so what did he take from this conversation then? The aged, aged man is the victim of misfortune. So whenever he experiences a misfortune like putting his fingers into glue or putting his foot on the wrong shoe or dropping a heavy toe, heavy toe, heavy weight upon his toe, such as it might be some other unusually heavy toe. Um, any mishap such as this, um, <laughs> mishaps, all of which involve his extremities, um, they all... Um, Oh, by the way, yes. That also, by the way, um, 
first fish is another thing that I love. I love the the play on foot, right? It's a, a pair of lines about putting your foot wrong, but they are a pair of lines whose feet are all perfectly right. Um, or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe. Uh, it's just could not be more mellifluously iambic than that. And so the irony of like the perfect feet um, telling lines about the wrong foot being squeezed and madly squeezed into the wrong shoe. Uh, just awesome. Anyway, 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 anyway. Physical mishaps to his extremities remind him of the aged Asian man. So what does that tell us that he got from this guy? Um, that he had been unfortunate? That he was poor. Like, did he actually give him anything? Did he give him a handout? Um, it's not clear that he did anything. Um, but uh, anyway, um, notice also that the bad things that are happening to his extremities are all things that he is doing to himself. It's not just like when misfortune strikes. I think of the aged, aged man. When I do something dumb, by chance, I accidentally put my hand in glue, like you do, I guess. I accidentally, I madly put the wrong shoe on, the wrong foot on my shoe. Um, I drop a heavy weight upon my toe. Whenever I inflict some sort of harm upon myself... I weep because it reminds me of what the self-destructive life pattern of the aged, aged man. Is that what he took from it? Maybe I don't really know. Um, you know, but he sort of makes him into this romantic figure, which then gets alternately built up. You know, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow, whose hair was whiter than the snow, and torn down, whose face was very like a crow with eyes like cinders all all aglow, um, and made a pathetic figure, rocking his body to and fro, distracted with his woe, right? Um, you know, all these, uh, all these modifiers. So, yeah, and I agree, Gerald, you'd think the White Knight would remember the aged, aged man often, right? Um, which, again, I think is another one of those ironies of the meta situation. Like, that the speaker of the poem is plainly the white knight himself and yet is not though is distant from the white knight by the convention of the song he's just he's just singing the song it's it's not it's not autobiographical he doesn't actually claim to have met an aged aged man right um but that is the irony right is that he would uh he would that is uh, you know yet another irony is that you he would seem to be underestimating the number of times that he does something unfortunate like this. Um, yeah. So, um, Oh, right. Okay. So remember the context. Remember that passage going backwards that we got right before the song began. This flashbulb moment. 
Of all the strange things that Alice saw in her journey through the looking glass, this was the one that she always remembered most clearly. Years afterward, she could bring the whole scene back again, as if it had been only yesterday. The mild blue eyes and kindly smile of the night, the setting sun gleaming through his hair and shining on his armor in a blaze of light that quite dazzled her. The horse quietly moving about, with the reins hanging loose on his neck, cropping the grass at her feet. And the black shadows of the forest behind, all this she took in like a picture as, with one hand shading her eyes, she leant against a tree, watching the strange pair and listening in a half-dream to the melancholy music of the song. Alice herself is reflecting, years later, on the White Knight. Um, the sun gleaming through his hair. I don't know that it's whiter, as, you know, whiter than the snow. Um, but this brief moment of reflection, Alice's later reflection on her reflecting on the knight and his horse, um, while he's singing the song, is then mirrored within the song in that last stanza, when the speaker of the song reflects back how years later he reflects back on the aged, on the conversation with the aged, aged man. And sort of emphasizes that reflection, just as we get this paragraph of sort of odd and oddly detailed, oddly picturesque narration, you know, um, you know narration, like description, right? Dilation of the scene. We get this, it corresponds with the strange dilation of that last stanza, right? As he's getting this broader frozen picture of the aged, aged man sitting on the gate. Which, then, establishes a parallel between the relationship between the knight and the aged, aged man and Alice and the knight. But wait, it does more. Because you'll notice that Alice is not only reflecting in years after on what she saw. It's not just the knight and the horse and the forest behind, and the sun, which forms this flashbulb image, this picture that she carries around in her head and heart for the rest of her life. She's in the picture, too. With one hand shading her eyes, she leant against a tree, watching the strange pair, and listening in a half-dream to the melancholy music of the song. Her own self-listening, her own self-watching and listening, is also part of the subject of her own reflection. Just as the knight is singing a song about the knight, right? Not understanding the aged, aged man. Um, and of course, the way in which, in the beginning of this paragraph, Lewis Carroll does as he's done before, and kind of breaks the fourth wall here, especially by mentioning with capital letters the title of the book, Through the Looking Glass, in her journey through the looking glass. The narrator is also, through the dilation of this scene, prompting us to stand, um, you know, perhaps shading our eyes from the sun and leaning against a tree, looking at Alice, looking at 
the White Knight, who is singing a song about the White Knight thinking about the aged, aged man in reflection, right? So we get this 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 further, like, fractal moving out until we ourselves, as readers of the story, become implicated. And it makes me wonder, what is that parallel? What is the force of that parallel? The speaker in the story has no idea what was going on with the aged aged man, was not following him at all. The knight seems himself to have only uh, a dubious grasp on the actual purport of the narrative that he is telling. Does Alice understand the White Knight? Do we understand Alice? Are there disconnections there that we don't suspect? If we're laughing at the White Knight, is somebody going to laugh at us? And here's where I am forced to recall that I said at the beginning, I don't understand the White Knight. I don't see how it fits. I don't really know what he's doing in the story or why he's doing it. And now I'm wondering if maybe I'm not doing it right. <laughs> or rather, that's not what I'm rather supposed to be doing. Anyway, all right. Uh, really fun, complicated meta stuff going on in the White Knight's song. Then Alice steps across the stream and she's got a crown on her head. She's now been queened. She's reached the final square. And the White Queen and the Red Queen immediately appear next to her. Rather, she suddenly realizes they're there as if they were there the whole time. And they start asking her questions. She's undergoing an, exa an, an examination. Now, the examination that Alice undergoes is like a kind of master class in the kind of speaking at cross purposes that we've seen so often uh, in Lewis Carroll's works. There are lots of um, uh, there are lots of examples I could give from their conversation. I've only chosen a few, but look at how bewildering all of this is to Alice, who is herself on guard against this kind of thing now. Speak when you're spoken to, the queen sharply interrupted her. But if everybody obeyed that rule, said Alice, who was always ready for a little argument, and if you only spoke when you were spoken to, and the other person always waited for you to begin, you see, nobody would ever say anything so that ridiculous, cried the queen. Why, don't you see, child? Here she broke off with a frown, and after thinking for a minute, suddenly changed the subject of the conversation. What do you mean by, if you really are a queen? What right have you to call yourself so? You can't be a queen, you know, till you've passed the proper examination. And the sooner we begin it, the better. I only said if, poor Alice pleaded in a piteous tone. The two queens looked at each other, and the Red Queen remarked with a little shudder, She says she only said if. But she said a great deal more than that, the White Queen moaned, wringing her hands. Oh, ever so much more than that. So you did, you know. The Red Queen said to Alice, Always speak the truth. Think before you speak, and write it down afterwards. I'm sure I didn't mean, Alice was beginning, but the Red Queen interrupted her impatiently. That's just what I complain of. You should have meant. What do you suppose is the use of a child without any meaning? 
Even a joke should have some meaning, and a child's more important than a joke, I hope. You can't deny that, even if you tried with both hands. I don't deny things with my hands, Alice objected. Nobody said you did, said the Red Queen. I said you couldn't if you tried. She's in that state of mind, said the White Queen, that she wants to deny something, only she doesn't know what to deny. This is, as I say, to Alice and I know to me, bewildering, very hard to keep up with the Queen's as both of them are not only peppering her with questions, which are quite difficult to answer. Um, my, uh, my favorite question in their examination is what happens if you divide a dog from a bone? Um, but um, the way in which her words are being seized upon, as we've seen them seized upon many times, right? Um, but notice how the Red Queen, again, she keeps shifting her ground. Um, I'm sure I didn't mean that's just what I complain of. You should have meant. What do you suppose is the use of a child without any meaning? Now she's shifted. Remember the, you know, it was all kinds of fastness with me, like when Alice said to the White Knight that the different kind of fastness when he shifted from one use of the word to, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, when he got stuck in the helmet, he was fast as lightning. And she says, that's a different kind of fastness, right? Um, she's, the Red Queen shifts in between the second and the third sentence to a different kind of meaning. From meaning in the sense of what you intended to say to what's the use about a child without any meaning? Like that a child should have a meaning, even a joke should have meaning. And if a joke has a meaning, if there is some kind of lesson or significance to the joke, there should be a lesson or significance inherent in a child. And just as she's trying to grasp that shift, she shifts again. You couldn't deny that, even if you tried with both hands. Wait a second. I don't deny things with my hands. Nobody said you did. I said you couldn't if you tried. Which is true. Which is true. Um, the way, Notice how, like, the Red Queen, like, does it to herself, taking her words at face value. Um, notice how this is very like what the White King did um, when he says there's nothing like eating hay uh, when you're feeling faint. And Alice says, I would think there'd be many things nicer than that. And he says, I didn't say there was nothing nicer. I said there was nothing like it. Um, the Red Queen does the same thing, except even more complicated. You couldn't deny that, even if you tried with both hands. Nobody said you denied things with your hands. I said you couldn't if you tried. It's even more clever a turnaround than what the White King does. Throughout this section, I feel like we're getting peppered with all of the th like trends that we've seen throughout the book in rapid fire succession and sometimes shifting from one to another. It's like a, a very frenzied recap of almost everything that we've seen in the book so far. And he can, it can, this continues on. Um, the white queen refers to a, a set of Tuesdays and Alice is puzzled in our country. She remarked, there's only one day at a time. 
The Red Queen said, That's a poor thin way of doing things. Now here, we mostly have days and nights two or three at a time. And sometimes in the winter we take as many as five nights together. For warmth, you know. Are five nights warmer than one night, then? Alice ventured to ask. Five times as warm, of course. But they should be five, time, five times as cold, by the same rule. Just so, cried the queen. Five times as warm and five times as cold, just as I'm five times as rich as you are and five times as clever. Alice sighed and gave it up. It's exactly like a riddle with no answer. Just like when she was asking simple sort of social formula questions to Humpty Dumpty, and he was responding to them as if they were riddles. What dreadfully easy riddles, you ask. Or even like the uh, uh, the answer, the riddle without an answer that she was asked by the March Hare uh, back in Alice in Wonderland. Um, Alice sighs and she can't keep up with it, right? Um, the Red Queen's insistence on contradiction, it's both five times as warm and five times as cold is just like the contradictions that she was insisting on in their first conversation when Alice was calling her on that, right? No, 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 no. A, a valley can't be a hill, right? That's nonsense. And then, of course, the Red Queen turns it, I mean, the parallel. Five times as warm, warm and five times as cold, just as I'm five times as rich as you are and five times as clever. Not even going to argue, right? Um, or this was... It might isolated favorite moment, I think, in this whole chapter. Humpty Dumpty saw it, too, the White Queen went on in a low voice, more as if she were talking to herself. He came to the door with a corkscrew in his hand, just like the figure in Humpty Dumpty's song. What did he want? said the Red Queen. He said he would come in, the White Queen went on, because he was looking for a hippopotamus. Now, as it happened, there wasn't such a thing in the house that morning. Is there generally? Alice asked in an astonished tone. Well, only on Thursdays, said the queen. I know what he came for, said Alice. He wanted to punish the fish because... Here the white queen began again. Did you get it? You get the joke there? I love that line. He wanted to punish the fish because... That Alice should say that she knows why he came and then start saying why he was wanted to punish the fish, and then be cut off right when she says the word because, um, which is, of course, the last song of Humpty Dumpty's poem. It's a, it's a recapitulation of the poem, right? Alice, of course, does not know what he came... If his coming is parallel to the coming of the speaker of his poem, with the coming to the door with a corkscrew in his hand, just like the guy in the poem did... Alice would, by, for that reason, not know why he came, because it's never explained anywhere in the song, right? Um, and whether Alice is actually making a guess at why, he, why Humpty Dumpty wanted to punish the fish, um, or whether, exactly whether she does... Um, uh, Mighty Felix, as if she knew she'd be interrupted. She was intending to be interrupted right when she said the word because. I think that's the case, by the way. I think the dash after because. I think Alice is making a very clever joke at Humpty Dumpty's expect here, expense here. He wanted to punish the fish because. 
I don't think she intends to finish that sentence. I think that's why there's a dash there. Um, or sort of two dashes, right? Um, uh, <laughs> yes. JJ says, my internet flickered and froze the site right after you said, because, and it took me a moment to realize it wasn't merely a dramatic pause. Exactly. That's exactly where your internet should freeze, right? Um, uh, yes. I guess if, um, if your internet is freezing me in the middle of a sentence and you can't tell whether it's deliberate uh, or, or uh, whether it's an accident, we must be doing through the looking glass right, I think. Um, Fourth dollars, I like that. He says, maybe it's an example of causality going backwards. Alice started speaking because the queen interrupted her. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But anyway, you can see, this is what I mean by, like, all the things we've seen before being sort of jumbled together, followed by this remarkable poetical insight that Alice has, right? I didn't put this passage up, but you'll remember she points out that she's listened to a great deal of poetry, but all of the poetry that she's listened to had one thing in common. That it was all about fishes. That there were fish involved in every single poem that she has listened to. Um, even Haddock's Eyes, right, um, involved fish, at least indirectly. And she doesn't know what to do with that. Why is it that she is, everyone is singing poems about fish to her? here in Looking Glass Land. But she is rewarded uh, later on, we'll come back to the fish, because she's rewarded with a riddle about a fish at the end. Um, where was the where were fish in Jabberwocky? Oh, there aren't, but she wasn't recited that. She recited that. All of the poem that the poetry that was spoken to her was just as some of the nursery rhymes that she remembers aren't about fish either, but all of the songs that have all the the poetry that's been recited at her, um, in a variably friendly, aggressive or passive aggressive fashion by the other people that she's met, um, then all of a sudden, the interrogation is over, and both of the queens drop to sleep. She's tired, poor thing, said the Red Queen. Smooth her hair, lend her your nightcap, and sing her a soothing lullaby. I haven't got a nightcap with me, said Alice, as she tried to obey the first direction, and I don't know anything, any soothing lullabies. I must do it myself, then, said the Red Queen, and she began. Hushabye, lady, in Alice's lap. Till the, till the feast's ready, we've time for a nap. When the feast's over, we'll go to the ball, Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all. I don't think, it might just be me, but I don't think that's a very soothing lullaby. And I have reasons to think that that is not, I'm not saying that it's not possible uh, to sing this to the tune of a soothing lullaby. One could compose a soothing lullaby tune that might perhaps fit the metrics of this poem. I'm not saying that that's impossible. Um... Uh, right, neither is Rockabye Baby, for that matter. No. Um, but, well, we'll get to the other reason why I don't think it's soothing in 
some of the next slides. But let's look at the how this works because we're going to want to um, we're going to want to examine that. We're, we're going to want to know this. Hushabai lady in Alice's lap. Till the feast's ready, we've time for a nap. When the feast's over, we'll go to the ball. Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all. And yes, it is Rockabye Baby on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come Baby, Cradle and all. But it's not metrically identical to that. Hushabye Lady in Alice's Lap. Um... Notice there's, there are extra syllables. It moves faster than Rockabye Baby does. Hushabye Lady is the same with the, the sort of joke, right? Hushabye, you know, re, re, replacing lady for baby and thus reversing. You've got the child soothing the adult maternal figure to sleep, right? Um, Hushabye Lady in Alice's lap. Till the feast's ready, we've time for a nap. When the feast's over, we'll go to the ball. Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all. Okay, so we've got... There's a basic pattern. Hushabye Lady establishes the pattern. Stress, unstressed, unstressed, stressed. Um, and the line ends with a symmetrical uh, Alice's lap. Um, Alice's lap is the same pattern. Stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed. And then you've got the one word in between. In Hushabye Lady, in Alice's lap. The symmetry is pleasing. Till the feast's ready, we've time for a nap. Um, till... Now, this one is more, much more awkward. Because feast really sounds like it should be a stressed syllable. So if it weren't like the pattern established in the first line, because we got it twice, hushabye lady, Alice's lap. Well, sorry, we get two syllables because lady, the second syllable of lady is unstressed too. So you got stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, unstressed. So it's kind of dactylic with a, with a, uh, a, a stress syllable at the end. Husha by Lady and Alice's lap. Till the feast's over, till the feast's ready, we've time for a nap. That works with the same meter uh, as long as you unstress feast, which is for many reasons a strange word uh, to unstress. Strange because it has so many letters. Feast takes a long time to get out of your, like the ST, um, it takes a long time to get out of your mouth, um, especially feasts with the apostrophe S, uh, still one syllable, but a long, awkward syllable to get out with an open vowel in it too. And it's a noun, right? It's the main noun of the whole line. So it's a deeply odd word to try to do unstressed. It, there feels a conflict there, right? Similarly, in the next line, when the feast's over, we'll go to the ball. Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all. Okay, so they do 
Um, notice that the chief difference then to the metrical form of Rockabye Baby is that it's more regular. Rockabye Baby on the treetop. There's like the cisura in the middle of that line. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Till the feast's ready, we've time for a nap. Hear how much more driving that is? Because the basically dactylic rhythm, stressed, unstressed, unstressed, um, is maintained regularly, again, if you can get over the feast. Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all. Notice how the ands, which are unnecessary, I mean, you don't have to say the ands, commas would suffice in a list, right? Red Queen, White Queen, Alice and all would be a perfectly satisfactory way to say it, but by adding the ands, you make it stick to the rhythm. And in fact, that last line becomes the most sort of triumphant dactylic line. Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all. Every line ending with that final stress. Lap, nap, ball, all. Uh, just rhyming couplets here. Um, with Alice framing first line and last, and with the two central lines about the feast, it's a lovely little shape. Um, yeah, I think the, the, line, the, the feel is primarily dactylic. And now you know the words, she added, as she put her head down on Alice's other shoulder. Just sing it through to me. I'm getting sleepy, too. In another moment, both queens were fast asleep and snoring loud. And Alice finds herself sitting there with two queens sleeping on her and says, Has anyone in the history of England ever been in this situation? History of England, recalling us back to Humpty Dumpty, right? That's a history of England, that is. As I said, there's like callbacks to everything in this last chapter. But such a jumble of things. Well, that poem is going to be important in one more slide. We'll come back to it. Um, we interrupt it to have another delightful exchange, this time with the frog um, and Alice speaking at cross purposes. Um, and uh, she's trying to get somebody to answer the door. To answer the door, he said. What's it been asking of? He was so hoarse that Alice could scarcely hear him. I don't know what you mean, she said. I speaks English, doesn't I? The frog went on. Or are you deaf? What did it ask you? Nothing, said Alice impatiently. I've been knocking at it. Shouldn't do that. Shouldn't do that, the frog muttered. Waxes it, you know. Then he went up and gave the door a kick with one of his great feet. You let it alone, he panted out as he hobbled back to his tree, and it'll let you alone, you know. The frog's question, I speaks English, doesn't I, is of course a delightful, uh, delightful question. Um, yes, he speaks English, though his English is poorer than any other character that we've met, right? Um, what did it ask you? What's it been asking of? Why are you trying to, why do you want someone to answer it if it's not been asking any questions? I've been knocking at it. You shouldn't do that. 
You're going to, you're going to wax the door. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to vex the door, right? Yes. The frog is a little horse. No, the frog isn't a little horse. Yeah. It clearly has a frog in its throat. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, don't, don't knock at the door. If you leave it alone, it'll leave you alone. And then you won't have any more problems with the door. One reason to answer the door would be if it had asked a question, you would need to answer it, right? What's the other reason you would need to answer it? There's another sense of the word answer, I think, that's being used here by the end. You answer a challenge as well. So um, the frog's like, what are, have you... Uh, have you reached some kind of unreconcilable, like ir irreconcilable disagreement with the door? Are Alice and the door gonna gonna have a duel at dawn or something now? Like the 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 door must be answered, right? And his advice is like stop knocking at it, right? If she's insulting it by knocking at it, um, and so if it's striking back at you, well, that's what you can expect, right? Because you were striking it. So uh, if uh, if you let it alone, it'll let you alone, you know, and it won't need to be answered and everybody can be at peace. Um, at this moment, the door was flung open and a shrill voice was heard singing. To the looking glass world, it was Alice that said, I've a scepter in hand, I've a crown on my head. Let the looking glass creatures, whatever they be, come and dine with the Red Queen, the White Queen and me. You see why I was spent some time with the lullaby meter, because this is very similar, especially that last line, Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all come dine with the Red Queen and White, the White Queen and me. Right. It's um, very similar, not exactly identical, though. Two extra syllables, right? If we just had dine with the red queen, the white queen, and me, it would be exact. Dine with the red queen, the white queen, and me. But we get the first two syllables. We get two syllables added at the beginning. So what happens? It's a poetic joke, what happens here. We had a line that was dactylic. Stressed, unstressed, unstressed. Stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, unstressed, ending with stress. Right? That was the basic meter of the lullaby. But now he's added two syllables at the beginning. And if you add two syllables to the beginning of that line, what do you suddenly have? You've suddenly transformed your dactylic line into an anapestic line. Right? Bum, 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 bum. It's now a perfect anapestic tetrameter line. Come and dine with the white come and dine with the red queen, the white queen and me. For the star-bellied sneeches had bellies with stars, but the plain-bellied sneeches had none upon theirs. Um, for the Grinch's small heart grew ten si grew ten sizes grew three sizes that day. Um, the uh, both of those are in anapestic tetrameter. Anapestic tetrameter, one of Dr. Seuss's favorite uh, favorite meters. And 
by putting those extra two syllables at the beginning, you've got a line which sounds almost exactly like the old line, except it's now completely opposite. Instead of going stressed, unstressed, unstressed, bum 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 bum, it's reversed. Bum 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 bum. Just as I am's bum 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 bum, and trochees bum 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 are very similar, but feel almost opposite to each other. Right. To the looking glass world, it was Alice that said, I've a scepter in hand, I've a crown on my head. Let the looking glass creatures, whatever they be, come dine with the come and dine with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. It's an anapestic song. We haven't gotten any anapest. Bum 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 bum. Um and hundreds of voices joined in the chorus. Then fill up the glasses as quick as you can, and sprinkle the table with buttons and bran. Put cats in the coffee and mice in the tea, and welcome Queen Alice with thirty times three. What happened there? Is that an anapest too? Is it? It looks like it's set up to be call and response, the same song. Does it sound the same? Then fill up the glasses as quick as you can, and sprinkle the table with buttons and bran. Put cats in the coffee and mice in the tea, and welcome Queen Alice with thirty times three. Almost. Notice the pervasive difference. They've clipped a syllable off the beginning of every line. Right? Each line starts with an I am, then fill and sprink. Put cats and well. Right? But after that, unstressed, stressed, then it proceeds to anapest. Then fill up the, you know, bump, bump, up the glasses as quick as you can. Bump, 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 The call, the initial voice, is full, full anapest. And then we get this truncated anapest in the response. Third and fourth stanzas. O looking glass creatures, quoth Alice, draw near. Tis an honor to see me, a favor to hear. Tis a privilege high to have dinner and tea along with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. It starts at the beginning. O look, right, with that same little iambic lift. O looking glass creatures, quoth Alice, draw near. Now we're back to straight anapest. Tis an honor to see me, a favor to hear. Tis a privilege high to have dinner and tea. Again, any time you can do meter this strict while doing while including words of three syllables or more, you're showing off. That's just the way it is. Tis a privilege high to have dinner and tea along with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. Then fill up the glasses with treacle and ink or anything else that is pleasant to drink. Mix sand with the cider and wool with the wine and welcome Queen Alice with ninety times nine. Same pattern as before. Beautiful. 
Um, so we have the lullaby, which is supposed to be a soothing lullaby in dactyls. And then we take those dactyls, put two syllables in front of it, make them into anapests, and now they are chaotic celebration songs, right? The opposite of lullabies, putting people to sleep. We have uh, um, welcome and praise. With 30 times 3 means, welcome Queen Alice with 30 times 3 means, I believe, like 30 times 3 cheers, like hip hip hooray. That would be one. Then we have to say hip hip hooray together 32 more times, right? Um, Alice observes this when she hears the cacophony of sound. Um, then followed a confused noise of cheering, and Alice thought to herself, 30 times 3 makes 90. I wonder if anyone's counting, right? They're all cheering. Did anybody count how many cheers? Have they given 90 cheers yet, right? And she that's why she becomes rather alarmed when they say 90 times 9 at the end of the, this next chorus, um, as the cheering is... Uh, multiplying rather alarmingly. I, I know, 89 more times. I know, I know. Anyway, um, I just said 33, didn't I? Yeah, 30 times 3. Right, exactly. Anyway, point is, um, that's what they're talking about. Let's look at the content of the songs. To the looking glass world, it was Alice that said, There's a distance in this song. First of all, this is the first song that's been about Alice. Remember that we've had this sort of thing before. It's usually been Alice, and it's usually been a nursery rhyme, like the Humpty Dumpty song, or the Tweedledum and Tweedledee song, or the Lion and the Unicorn song, um, where she sings a song about the thing that she is seeing, right? Here now, her entering in as a queen is the thing that is being sung about, just as she was singing about those other things. And remember the cause and effect relationship there, right? But it's not just that this song is about Alice, it's also about the looking glass world generally understood, right? It keeps referring to the looking glass world. It's not that we've got no references to that. Um, like, for instance, just in the recent conversation with the Red and White Queen, Alice was contrasting how her world works and how their world works, and they reflect what it must be a pale sort of world, right, in which you only do one day at a time. Um, so it's not that that kind of, you know, evaluation of looking glass world on the one hand and Alice and Alice's world on the other hand. Something that's unknown in the book, and of course we got it in the conversation with the White Queen back in Chapter 4 as well. But um, we've never had a song about it, right? And this is a song about Alice's visit to Looking Glass World. To the Looking Glass World, it was Alice that said, I've a scepter in hand, I've a crown on my head. Let the Looking Glass creatures, whatever they be, come, dine, come and dine with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. So the song is about 
it is an it is an invitation to Alice's party. Remember that she had said before that she thought that if it's her party, she should be the one to make the invitations. She said, um, slightly snippily, to the Red Queen before, right? But now, um, we find that the song that is being sung, sung is putting the invitation in her mouth. I have a scepter in hand, I have a crown on my head. Let the looking glass creatures, whatever they be, come and dine with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. And the looking glass creatures collectively, in hundreds of voices, appear to reply. Then fill up the, the glasses as quick as you can and sprinkle the table with buttons and bran. Put cats in the coffee and mice in the tea and welcome Queen Alice with thirty times three. So, the first line and the last line seem sensible enough. Then fill up the glasses as quick. Since Alice is inviting us to the feast, then fill up the glasses as quick as you can. And welcome Queen Alice with 30 times 3. That's a lot of cheering. 90 cheers. That's a lot of cheering. Um, but, um, but that seems like a, a fitting sort of response, right? But then sandwiched in the middle of that we have their specific instructions for the preparation of the feast. Sprinkle the table with buttons and bran. Buttons, of course, I can't help but remember the haddock's eyes. Um, and the waistcoat buttons, which stuck out so much from that poem. Put cats in the coffee and mice in the tea. Like you do. Right. Um, apart from the fact that buttons and bran alliterate and that neither cats nor mice would presumably enjoy being in the coffee or tea, I'm not sure why we're doing that, right? We get the same shape the second time round. Another quoth Alice. Once more, Alice's own words being projected out by the, by the shrill voice, which is announcing Alice, but in her own voice, except it's not her voice. It's like a parody of her voice. O looking-glass creatures, quoth Alice, draw near. Tis an honor to see me, a favor to hear. Tis a privilege high to have dinner in tea, along with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. Notice the persona of Alice as it's being drawn by the shrill voice, who is putting words in her mouth, is um, rather pretentious. I have a scepter in hand. I have a crown on my head. So the first time, it sounds like it, it could just be actually somewhat condescending, meaning nothing but good, right? I have a scepter in hand. I have a crown on my head. Even that, there's like a kind of discovery there. This is, of course, what just happened. Like, hey, I have a crown on my head. As she crosses the brook, she discovers there's a crown on her head, right? And so the first time, it sounds like Alice merely sharing the wonder of that with everybody. Hey guys, check it out. I've got a scepter in hand and a crown on my head. Under those circumstances, let the looking glass creatures, whatever they be, come and dine with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. It's a generous and kindly invitation, right? I'm going to reach out to all of the looking glass creatures, howsoever lowly. Presumably, the giant gnat is also invited. Uh, maybe even the uh, bread and butterfly, which perhaps might find weak tea with cream in it uh, and survive for once. Anyway, generous, broad invitation. The second time, it's a little bit less kindly. 
Tis an honor to see me, a favor to hear. Tis a privilege high to have dinner and tea along with the Red Queen, the White Queen, and me. Um, let me emphasize that my invitation is not merely, to, but that like of how what a very high opinion I have to I have of myself, right? So it gets twisted a bit here. And you'll remember, Alice has been wanting to be a queen very much. And even in the tension we saw between the queens and Alice in the first part of this chapter, uh, you, there was a certain amount of um, rebellion against the queens, right? Alice uh, sort of taking herself uh, seriously. Then fill up the glasses with treacle and ink, or anything else that is pleasant to drink. Mix sand with the cider and wool with the wine, and welcome Queen Alice with ninety times nine. Notice how all of the perverse suggestions here. It sounded merely silly the first time. I, like why we're putting cats in the coffee and mice in the tea was not clear at all, or why buttons and bran should be sprinkled about the table. Um, but now filling up the glasses with treacle and ink. Uh, mixing sand with the cider and wool with the wine begins to sound almost malicious. Right? Again, presumably putting cats in the coffee would be malicious to the cats. Uh, but, um, but there's no real sense in that first chorus that there's anything malicious to the drinkers about it. Like, it's a peculiar... Special, clearly, practice, but um, we don't know exactly how or why. But here, mixing sand with the cider and wool with the wine doesn't sound like anybody's going to enjoy that, right? And it, again, in the context of "tis an honor to see me, a favor to hear, tis a privilege high to have dinner and tea," it makes me wonder if the the chorus is now sounding a little bit grumpy, right? Um. Yeah, a little bit grumpy, increasingly, right? The, this hint of rebellion. By the way, once again, callbacks to almost everything from earlier in the book. Um, fill up the glasses with treacle and ink. Treacle and ink. Um, where might you get the ink? So treacle, of course, is molasses. Um, very, very sweet. Um, so a treacle tart is a is like... Um, you know, fly pie or, or uh, pecan pie. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very sweet. Um, fill up the glasses with treacle and ink. So if, um, if you've got treacle plus some other liquid in your glass, this is presumably a, a pudding beverage, right? A dessert beverage. Um, so you're telling me it's a, it's a, a dessert it's a pudding beverage that involves ink, such as like it might be derived from blotting paper. Maybe they sprinkle a little gunpowder in there as well. Um, you know, drop some sealing wax, you know, put some sealing wax on the edge of the glass, perhaps. Right. This sounds uh, like it might be a first cousin to the White Knights invented but uh, never served pudding. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed, you're saying, Corey, let me get this straight. This was your intro to English book for your students. One of them. Yeah, yeah, we read this book. Um, 
my I'm not saying I think that was a a very good idea. Um, confession. English 101 gets dull to teach. Sometimes it's fun just to mix things up a little bit. Give students a book they don't really expect. Um, I think my vague goal, I had some other more specific goals, but I think my vague goal in including through the looking glass in my English 101 syllabus back in the day was that I, I wanted to make them suspicious. That is, I wanted to build their resistance to just taking words at face value. Um, one of the things when I'm teaching, when I was teaching English classes to non-English students, um, one of the things that I found hardest was getting them, getting them to stop just kind of letting a book happen to them, you know, um, like just taking for granted, taking the thing at face value, just taking it for granted. Um, and instead, I wanted them to have the experience of being a little bit suspicious of a book and what it is doing. Um, I wanted them to have the salutary experience of reading a book that pretty soon it becomes pretty clear that the book and its author are laughing at you. A book that is not only funny and that you may laugh at, but which is clearly laughing at you as well. Um, and to uh, instill a kind of um, um, benevolent wariness there to see, like, maybe I need to be on guard about what, you know, games these authors might be playing. We read it at the very beginning of the semester, I think. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, so um not sure if it worked <laughs> or not. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, I, um, cause again, the, um, I remember when I was in high school before the penny really dropped for me, when I was reading books in English class in ninth and 10th grade and my English teachers were trying to tell me, were trying to get me to see that there were all these other things going on beneath the surface of the books. I didn't get it. And I became very suspicious because it sounded like they were just making that crap up. I was very resistant to this. It's not that I couldn't see what they were doing, but it sounded to me like a pointless exercise of projecting your own cleverness upon a text. And I've, I've always retained that experience. Um, I remember the feeling of sitting there in my desk in 10th grade, being resistant and even vaguely scornful of the English teacher who was saying things which I'm like, it's not that I can't see that that works, but why would anyone do that? And remember, I was, it's not like I wasn't a reader. I loved books. I was an avid reader, but like, I felt like I was being asked to do something to a book that was unnatural to it, if you see what I mean. Um, and it wasn't until 
I began to see that, like, how these patterns of words and of usage, these patterns which, you know, these repeated usages which form these patterns and point to these things, how those things are actually organically built into a text. Um, that I began to see, okay, this is not just me being clever at a book's expense, but rather... Because, of course, the other thing that kind of poisoned me to that, I, poisoned is a strong word, that turned me against that initially, was the papers I was asked to write, where I felt like I was, like, I knew what the teacher wanted me to say. I mean, I could, you know, we read, I remember we read, like, Tom Sawyer in ninth grade, and I remember, um, you know, feeling it was perfectly obvious the thing that the English teacher was wanting me to say in the paper that she assigned. And I'm like, well... I'd kind of like an A, so I guess I'll say that thing. But I did not have the feeling that, like, reading Tom Sawyer, that's that thing that the English teacher wanted me to say about it, was the thing that the book was pushing me towards in any kind of organic way. Anyway, so it's that kind of... Um, so, yeah, so my intention, slightly sadistic intention, uh, in English 101 using this book was in part because I feel like nobody can read through the looking glass and not realize that this is a book that's messing with you, that this is a book that is playing with you and playing with itself and playing with language and doing things. And, you know, you could, even if you don't get it, even if you can't understand it, even if you have no idea what these patterns are pointing to, and I still don't understand half of them, I feel, um, you have no doubts about the, something is happening here, right? Um, this is a book which is so much about so much more than merely what it says on the surface. You can't read this book and just kind of let the story happen to you and kind of roll over you. I mean, I guess you maybe can, but you, I mean, honestly, you have to be either not paying attention at all or completely brain dead to not feel that, like, to be completely unaware of the playfulness of this text. Um... But um, anyway, yeah, so we didn't spend too long on it, which, I mean, I only sort of picked out. I, we read the whole thing, but I only picked out a few things to discuss, and then we moved on to some other stuff. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gerald says, I once deliberately did the opposite of what the teacher wanted me to say in the essay to see what would happen. Been there, Gerald. Um, been there. I, um, this is one of the reasons why I averaged no higher than a B plus in almost all of my English classes in high school. Um, none of my teachers and my parents could kind of understand it, but I had A's in math and science and B's and B pluses in English. And I'm like, I want to be an English major. And people are like that. I'm not sure you've got this pegged properly, dude. But part of it, Gerald was kind of that I was stubborn. Um, I was stubborn. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, anyway, but I will credit my junior year English teacher is the one who finally put it in a way that I got it. That was when the penny dropped was my junior year. doesn't mean I got A's my senior year. Um, because I didn't see eye to eye with my senior English teacher quite as much. And I thought I knew things better than she did. And uh, she didn't agree. Um, but anyway, um, 
but um but yeah yeah and that was where i really and so what i did um as um um sarah says she would uh, she would uh, have likely run screaming from the class my class was quite popular with sci- with the science majors actually um primarily because again the thing that i learned the thing that i learned my junior year was um it's all about observe like making observations seeing the patterns that are formed in these observations and drawing out the conclusions that the patterns of the data point to that's what that's what english is about that's what reading uh and understanding literature is about the mental process is exactly the same that you follow in physics lab or bio lab it's it's exactly the same you make observations you uh observe patterns in the observations uh you probably can't actually graph it to a curve but you metaphorically graph it to a curve that's what writing a paper is metaphorically graphing it to a curve um and showing what is the shape of it what is that what 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 is that pattern that emerges uh from the data that you're given in the book um so the papers i had them write afterwards were more data gathering stuff this was the kind of shock to the system the uh so you see what kinds of games authors might play with you anyway um but um there we are all right i'm digressing and it's super late um we will pick up after the welcome songs here uh at the feast and then through the end and the final questions and resolutions and non-resolutions of the end of the book next time so we will i continue to assert that we shall complete the book next time um i think we're right on pace to do that thanks everybody for joining me sorry for keeping you guys late and uh we will be back next week to finish through the looking glass and then begin after that to prepare ourselves to turn back to the history of middle earth thanks everybody and i'll see you guys next week bye now